you have your Bibles this morning, and I hope that you do join me in turning to Psalm 127. Psalm 127. In light of Mother's Day, I offer this morning what I would call something different than a proper sermon, more of a meditation on the application of some basic principles set forth in Psalm 127. You always have, as a preacher, at least I think this is a shared experience, a certain measure of angst in anticipation of Mother's Day. Of course, there are a variety of reasons for angst in anticipation of Mother's Day. You want to get it right in general, but especially when it comes to the sermon, you want to be convictional and kind and deal uh, gently and favorably with the ladies within the body. Mother's Day raises a variety of different responses. There are in every congregation those who are celebrating an ever-present, caring, compassionate mother who has been at their side ministering to and meeting needs as they've arisen. You're celebrating them today. Many of you visiting with parents with a mother that you've not seen perhaps in some time or live some distance from to be of encouragement to them. Circumstances have allowed you to be together. That is perhaps the majority experience. But there are also those who are mourning the absence of a mother. Some who are mourning the absence of a mother by virtue of death. They've lost their mother. Even mothers who are mourning the loss of a child, a son, or a daughter. And this day reminds them in a powerful and moving way of the absence of that person in their life. There are those who are mourning the absence of a mother by virtue of other circumstances. Something in their history, something in their background is separated them and they don't have what they understand to be the typical mother-daughter, mother-son relationship and this too creates sorrow for them. There are even those within our congregation that long for the gift of children and motherhood and look forward to with great anticipation that great day for them. The Bible reinforces here in Psalm 127 the shared and undergirding feeling of each of those groups. We know naturally as men and women that the children that God gives into our care are a gift from heaven above. So it's a natural thing that we would want for that, that we would crave for that. Even in those instances when children are wayward and it creates sorrow for us, there's a want to steward well the responsibility of bringing them up in the training and admonition of God. We know that children and motherhood, for that matter, are gifts from God. And the psalmist reinforces this notion here in Psalm 127. If you found your way there, I want to invite you to join me in standing out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. Verses 3 through 5 will be the focus of our time together, but I want us to begin reading in verses 1 uh, and verses one and 2 as well. The Bible says here, unless the Lord builds a house, its builders labor over it in vain. Unless the Lord watches over a city, the watchman stays alert in vain. In vain you get up early and stay up late, working hard to have enough food. Yes, he gives sleep to the one he loves. Sons are indeed a heritage from the Lord, children a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the sons born in one's youth. 
Happy is the man whose filled is quiver with them. Such men will never be put to shame when they speak with their enemies at the city gate. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. At the heart of Psalm 127 is the acknowledgement that children are one of God's most remarkable gifts. That the little ones that God has entrusted to our care are a signal of God's favor, his grace, his kindness on our life. This is stated as much as in verse 3. But before we get that, I want a brief observation from verses 1 and 2. Look at, look, look at, look at verse 1. Unless the Lord builds a house, its builders labor over it in vain. Unless the Lord watches over a city, the watchman stays alert in vain. In vain you get up early and stay up late, working hard to have enough food. Yes, he gives sleep to the one he loves. Briefly stated, what the psalmist is recounting here is the reality that the most consequential of things in life are not the product of our decisions, but of the counsel of God in heaven. You may labor and strain and strive and make what you regard as all the right decisions along the way. But unless the Lord builds a house, its builders labor over it in vain. This is a reminder to us that we ought to celebrate the faithfulness of God in our life, moving about us in ways that confound our imagination. This is a psalm of ascent. That's the way it's described in our passage, a song that would be sang by the congregation as they approach the temple. In our mind, if you can envision a community gathering together in a church service, singing hymns along the way. This was one of the hymns intended for that kind of event, that kind of travel. It's a song of ascent because the congregation is gathering and ascending the temple mount as they sing these songs. The closest I've seen of this was doing mission work in Haiti. Years ago, we'd undertaken a fairly large construction project. It was post-earthquake. A church building has been destroyed and we were doing evangelistic uh, ministry in the neighborhoods around the church itself. And uh, we, would, we would spend the night in those Sunday school classes of that church building. We would mostly melt in the Sunday school classes of that church building, but we would stay there overnight. The church was surrounded by a gate and there were slums around the church building. And, and on Sunday morning, we, we would sleep in and go to the later service to make room for the community and those earlier, more popular services. You wanted to go to church early there because of the heat inside the building. And, and you, you, would, you would wake up on Sunday morning to the sounds of the voices of those from the community gathering together to the church. You could not understand their Creole dialect, but you would know the, the tune that they would be singing. It's a marvelous way to wake up on the Lord's day. Here the people of Israel are gathering together to the temple. And one of the songs they sing as they celebrate God's faithfulness is a song of celebration for the children that God has entrusted to their care. And they don't understand in the way that we understand scientifically the idea of conception and childbearing. They're not thinking in terms of scientific process as the process by which they receive the children that they have. They're acknowledging what comes even before the scientific process. 
something that many in our society need to be reminded of, that it's not ultimately the decisions that they are themselves making or any scientific process, but the good providence of God that entrusts the care of our children unto us. They are indeed a gift from God's hand in our life. Verse 3, the Bible says, sons are indeed a heritage from the Lord, children a reward. You can interpret the first line of verse 3, sons are indeed a heritage from the Lord. In a broader, more generic sense, we might say that daughters likewise are indeed a heritage from the Lord. Although as the father of three boys, I may, might be more partial toward the former. Sons indeed are a heritage from the Lord. I have a, a good friend, I have three boys, I have a good friend who has three girls, and he likes to tell me that God never sends a boy where he already has a man. I don't know about that logic, <laughs> but in any event, sons and daughters are worthy of celebration. Indeed, sons are a heritage from the Lord, children a reward. Now, this is a relatively basic principle, right? That the children that God has given us are a gift from heaven. You would think that our perspective would be shaped by this. That we would orient our conversation and our actions, our conduct in some respect, around the notion that these children are God's gift. But far too often, even within the church, we're emulating the tone, the tenor, the conversation of a crooked and perverse generation with regards to children, rather than celebrating them as the gift of God to us. In a great deal of conversation, children are regarded as something of a burden. We, we don't celebrate the way that we ought to. Our perspectives aren't shaped by this incredible reality that God is giving from his hand into our care the gift of our children. Verse 5 goes beyond the simple notion that children are God's gift to us to note that children are the glory of their parents. In verse 4, the Bible says, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the sons born in one's youth. They are his, his strength, in some ways his power. Verse 5, happy is the man who's filled his quiver with them. Such men will never be put to shame when they speak with their enemies at the city gates. I can remember... Uh, being sat down by an older Christian man early in my walk with Jesus and being mentored as to the proper number of arrows that belonged in the quiver of the archer. I'm not sure that's the psalmist intent here. Although there is a celebration of having a great many children, there is no requirement as to the number that you'll have or the goal you might set for yourself with regards to childbearing. In any event, there is a different outlook on bearing children in our passage. Not as burdensome, not as an attachment to our life, not as cumbersome, but as a great gift and the joy of our heart. Children are described here as the glory of their parents. Proverbs 17.5 says that grandchildren are the crown of the elderly. We know intuitively that grandchildren rejoice, or that grandparents rather rejoice, in their grandchildren. The proverb continues to say the pride of sons is their father. We know almost intuitively that children take a certain pride in their fathers. Children tend to be, at least until they hit puberty, to be proud of their parents. 
Then they don't want anything to do with you for a season. But eventually, it sort of cycles back, right? We've experienced that, so we anticipate a day when we're cool again or smart again in the eyes of our children. But what this passage is teaching is that children are the glory of their parents, that parents are themselves rejoicing in the children that God has entrusted to them. If you're a young person here and you've not come to a place where you can even fathom having your own children, lean in and listen carefully. You have no idea the extent to which your parents are rejoicing in every little thing you do. The things that you don't think a thing about, they're observing, they're monitoring, they're watching in you, their hearts are bursting with pride, and they are rejoicing in you. I I can find myself in conversation about things that my kids do, and I have to remind myself, wait, no one cares. Nobody cares. Nobody else. Nobody outside your house cares. But they're they're my children, the children God has entrusted to my care. And I find myself rejoicing in that your moms and dads feel the same. And any deviation from that is an abnormality. It's a break from the natural order. It takes something sinister to turn a parent's heart away from rejoicing in, finding glory in their children and every little thing they do. Psalmist says children are the glory of their parents. They actively draw honor to their parents by virtue of their very existence. Because you exist, glory and pride in the positive sense is drawn to the heart of your mother and father. I I, I want us in the remainder of our time to reflect on the ways that the simple observation of verse 3 that sons are a heritage from the Lord, children a reward, can work itself out in our experience. Because again, we seem to know this, but we speak in terms that suggest we haven't fully comprehended the weight of such a statement. What are practical ways we can live out a biblical perspective on children and family? What, What are things that you can do in your life to celebrate this remarkable gift that God has entrusted our care to value the lives of children and to honor the institution of family. Number one, there are 10. Y'all ready? Be active in adoption and foster care. And I'm going to say a whole lot here because we've, we've dealt with this at some length over the past months and years, but it's worth mentioning again. Not every family is situated such that they're able to adopt. Not every family is positioned such that they're able to foster, but there are ways of connecting in meaningful ways, even if your family is not positioned for such activity. I'm encouraging Christians to involve themselves in the foster care system, if for no other reason than to advocate for the children within that system. You have no idea the extent to which Children are at a greatly disadvantaged position within the framework of our systems. If you want to talk about systemic injustice, you cannot neglect the treatment of children in the foster care system. That's, that's a model of systemic injustice. And so get, get involved and be a part of that. Adopting and providing for the care of the least of these, those without loving families, be there. 
There's, there's another side of this adoption picture that I want us to touch on just quickly. And I'll just be honest. There's a great deal of, of our meditation this morning that is shaped for me by what we've observed in the news cycle in the past week. If you've been under a rock and you don't know, there was a leak from the United States Supreme Court this week regarding the court's finding on a case that directly involves the state of Mississippi that appears to indicate that in the coming weeks and months, Roe versus Wade is going to be overturned. That was the finding of the court in 1973 that's ultimately led to the abortion of 63 million babies. 63 million people who are, who are absent otherwise would have been here. Now, I think because of the way I hear some people speaking, that some are convinced that this is like the end of the pro-life movement. This was the goal everyone had been working toward. Now we're done. And that could not be further from the truth. In fact, this is a, a difficult and new beginning. There are going to be opportunities for service and ministry and adoption and foster care that were until now unheard of. And the church must stand ready to meet these needs. Now, I'm going to mention a lot of things this morning that we're not going to have the time for me to fully work through. So you're going to have to listen today with a double portion of grace. But one of the things that we must, in conversation and by attitude, begin to work toward is eliminating or at least alleviating the stigma that comes with adoption. It's unsettling to me the number of abortions that have happened in the past 50 years that were the decision of Christian mothers because of fear of the stigma of raising a child outside of marriage or having a child outside of marriage. We've got to stand ready to minister to the needs of unwed mothers as they arise. That doesn't change the fact that sex outside of marriage is sinful. We'll address it in just a moment. Neither does it change the fact that the gospel of Jesus Christ is sufficient to cover the greatest of sins. I'm thankful that God has looked upon me in great mercy. And I can assure you that coming to him in repentance and faith will guarantee that he looks upon you with the same measure of grace and mercy. There's another side of this thing, and we've wrestled with this personally as a family, and I don't know all the answers, but our attitude, our mentality has got to change in some kind of way. We've got to find the ability to encourage mothers outside of marriage in circumstances that are prohibitive to raising a child in an appropriate way, that adoption is, is a good selfless act that they would give that child into the care of a family that can provide for them their basic, their essential needs. And in the case of the Christian community, provide for the spiritual needs that will necessarily arise as well. I cannot fathom the difficulty of making that choice. But in those instances where there are circumstances that would prohibit a mother from being able to raise that child, it is a praiseworthy thing to make the decision to entrust the care of that child to another family. I can't tell you the number of times that I've rehearsed the story of Solomon's wisdom over the past three plus years. Do you remember when Solomon became the king of Israel? And he asked that God would give him great wisdom and God gave him great wisdom. And, and the illustration of his wisdom 
It's, it's when a, a mother, there were two women living together, and one of the women rolled over in the night. She smothered her child. The child died. And so she switched babies. She took the child, the infant child of the other mother, and they're brought before Solomon's court. And the real mother said, Solomon, I want my, I want my child back. And, and the illegitimate mother said, no, no, he's, he's mine. And Solomon, in his wisdom, called for a sword. And he said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to cut the baby in half. We're going to give half to you, and half to you will resolve the case. And in a, in a fit of desperation, the real mother cried out, no, just, just let her have the child. And one of the morals of the story is that there's a selflessness about a mother's love. They would rather see a child entrusted to the care of someone else than to see that child done any harm or any danger. What I've experienced is our, our natural response, our knee-jerk reaction is to begin to encourage without exception that mothers would do everything they could to keep a child in that care. And listen, that is the ideal. But it's not a horrible thing for a child to be entrusted to the care and well-being of another family. I would attest, and so would countless others within our congregation. This is just one of the ways we can put to foot the principle of Psalm 127, that children are a heritage from the Lord. Here's a second. We need to do a better job at celebrating pregnancy and childbirth. You would think that within the Christian community, where we recognize that children are a gift from God, that when someone is expecting a child, we would all just throw a party, right? Instead, you get sort of crude, crass commentary like, you know what causes that, right? Or you get poking fun at the number of children or the size of your family. We need to do a good job at celebrating God's gift when it visits a young mother or a mother in general. We need to do a better job at celebrating the reality that pregnancy and childbirth are indeed the gift of our God. Here's number three. We need to do everything within our power to support single and or struggling mothers. There's single mothers in our congregation, single mothers all over our community who are in many cases single of no choice of their own. And it's a very difficult set of circumstances to operate within. Even those who are doing their absolute best would acknowledge that there are certain challenges that come with being a single mother. I lived for a good portion of my uh, growing up years in a single mother household, and I can attest to the difficulties there. This is meeting financial needs, meeting material needs. This is being an open door to be willing to be the sitter. You can't imagine how challenging it is to just not have family in your area. Brandy and I look around at some of you with your parents and your grandparents right here in your community, and you just plan a date night and you drop those children off and you don't think a thing about imposing on mom and dad. They just have to deal with it because, hey, it's their grandchildren and you're off to the races. There are some, some everyday challenges that come with the absence of a nuclear family, parents who are in proximity. There are countless ways for absolutely no money whatsoever that you can be a real friend and a greatly supportive force to single struggling families in your area. And I think sometimes because of where we live, you look around at the level of affluence and you think, well, there, there are no needs here. People are gainfully employed and they have what they need. It's, it's easier to be up and out than it is to be down and out in our community. But that doesn't negate the reality that there are many on the outs in great need of the ministry of the church right here within an arm's reach of our congregation. Number four, 
This is one I'm passionate about. We need to hold fathers accountable to provide for their children. Sort of the far left response to this disclosure of the Roe v. Wade decision this past week has been to say, what we need to do is to hold fathers to contractual agreements to provide for mothers and their children for 18 years. To which I say, amen, but we have already had that since the dawn of time. It's called marriage. The Bible says that a father that does not provide for the needs of his wife and family is worse than an unbeliever. I give you a little inside baseball on your pastor. I, I don't like I don't like church discipline. You know, church discipline. I, I got some friends in ministry that seem to get excited about church discipline, and I just, I don't, I don't get it. When an issue that regards church discipline comes up, it just burdens my heart, keeps me up at night. I really wrestle in my spirit with that. But I'm going to tell you, this business of abandoning your wife and your children is a matter that is deserving of the full accountability afforded the church in Matthew chapter 18. And every effort ought to be made by the body of Christ to ensure that the accountability necessary is present to see that fathers and husbands provide for the needs of their wives and the children entrusted to their care. Now, here's the thing that I've observed in now the third service. Talk about a whole host of issues, many of them quite controversial in this morning's time together. We've yet got sex outside of marriage and divorce and abortion on the agenda. And there's been a lot of amens and people can rah-rah and get behind those things. But there hadn't a soul muttered an amen in three services when it comes to daddies providing for the needs of their family. We're really adept at, at wagging the finger at the sins that seem so distant. And pretty cavalier when it comes to those that lie a little closer to our front doorstep. Listen to me again, men. The Bible says that a man that fails to provide for the needs of his wife and children is worse than an unbeliever. And you ought to bow up and be a man and be strong in the grace afforded by Jesus Christ. Meet the physical and spiritual needs of your family in a manner worthy of the gospel. Don't talk to me about the gospel. Don't talk to me about doctrine. Don't talk to me about your church commitments if you're not meeting the basic needs of your wife and the children entrusted to your care. In the past couple of weeks, someone wanted to give me theological advice, not providing for the needs of their wife or their Get out of here with that mess. Number five. We need to warn with conviction and with kindness against bearing children outside of wedlock, which is the same as warning against sex outside of marriage. I'm, I'm weary of being able to safely assume entering into virtually every premarital counseling session that the Christian couple to be are sexually active outside of marriage. I'm just weary with it. Listen, it's not the unpardonable sin. God can give back the years the locusts have restored. But if you think that your sin will go unpunished, that it will bear no consequences, you've got another thing coming. Virtually all of the marriage counseling that I've done in now nearly 20 years of ministry 
in some ways, directly or indirectly, resulted from the decisions to be sexually active that were made in the years leading up to that marriage. That's just the reality. I'm just, I'm just telling you. And this is as commonplace among Christian kids as it is in the culture. It, it really is. To the shame of the church, it is as commonplace within the context of the church as it is outside. You've got to know that sex outside of marriage is not a rite of passage for teenage kids. It is a sin against a holy God. And it will bear consequences. It will inevitably bear consequences in terms of caring for children and honoring them as a gift from the Lord. This is not a statement of faith, but a statistical analysis of the reality. You have children outside of wedlock. For that matter, you have children and eventually divorce. Statistically, those children are far more likely to be imprisoned, to be abused, to be neglected, to fail to graduate high school, to fail to graduate college. They are far more likely to enjoy something less than the full measure of success, otherwise to be enjoyed within the framework of the nuclear family. You are setting yourself and you are setting them up for disaster apart from the work of God in your life. Now, again, this is an area where we need to speak compassionately and convictionally. If you handle this thing right, and I think this is why we don't speak to these issues. If you handle this thing right, the first people in line to defend the sanctity of this biblical value are those that have themselves experienced bearing children outside of marriage. The, the, the most ardent proponents of abstinence outside of marriage in my ministry have been those who themselves fell into sin. God moved in their life in powerful ways. And God has used them as they use their story to bear witness to the power of God. Yes, to give back the years the locusts have destroyed, but also to encourage young people that they not follow in the steps that they themselves have taken. We've got to warn against having children out of wedlock. It's not a rite of passage. It is a sin against God. Number six, we've got to warn again with conviction and kindness against the perils of divorce. I, I, I feel, I feel passionately about so many of these issues, but I don't know that I feel passionately about any of the others any more than this one. The single most consequential event in my life, second only to my conversion, was the announcement of my parents' divorce at 12 years old. And if you think, moms and daddies, husbands and wives, that you're going to make that decision in isolation and your children will not be impacted by that decision, you've got another thing coming. Again, this is another of those areas when treated appropriately, those who have themselves been victimized by divorce are the first in line to speak to the incredible fallout that comes as a result of divorce taking place within a family. But we're not doing one another any favors whatsoever if we fail to speak to this matter. Yes, there's grace and mercy and compassion, and it ought to be found first, first and foremost among the people of God. It is most assuredly found in Jesus Christ. But at the same time, we have to hold high the, the banner of the biblical standard that warns against divorce and its dreadful consequences in one's life. 
we, we take all these measures in the society to try to alleviate this. I can remember 20 years ago when Brandy and I were preparing for marriage, all of the conversation was divorce rate statistics, 50% of people getting divorced. And so the response was to double down on cohabitation, live together and functionally practice marriage. And if that works, then we'll take the next step. The problem with that rationale is that divorce rates among those who cohabitate jumps to a full 85%. God knows what he's doing. He's not the wicked taskmaster who desires to rob you of your joy. He has set the boundaries of our life with our best interest in view. He knows what he's doing. The missing element, the missing ingredients in most marriages today is commitment. What has come is this cancerous parasite is selfishness. We want for what we want in, in, a, in a greater way, in a more profound way than we want for the best interest of the family, the children that God has entrusted to our care. I just don't, I just don't get it. We, if we can just extend dating and courtship periods or just extend engagements. Moms and dads never like this observation, but I don't get the years-long engagements. I just don't get it. Typically, an abstinent couple will not be engaged for years. In fact, if it's up to the groom-to-be, they might not be engaged for months, but they won't be engaged for years. And, and none of our efforts, none, none, of, none of these steps that we've taken have really done anything to alleviate the presence of selfishness and the absence of commitment. One of the sweetest couples I've ever known, they were members of my, of my first church, and uh, she, they had been married almost 60 years when she passed away. They, they, were like, they were like teenage boys and girls together. They really, it was a beautiful, beautiful thing to see. She was a beautiful lady. He was a humble, godly man. When they, when they met, they, they met on a double date. They were out on a date with other people. In fact, he was on a date with her first cousin. And they went out together so their parents would allow them. And then the next Saturday... They went out together. He left the cousin at home, and those two met up to go out on a date themselves. And the next Saturday, they got married. Now, I'm not advocating for two-week engagements here. But I am telling you that the rehearsal of marriage before marriage is not benefiting you. The problem is not the absence of practice. The problem is the presence of selfishness. There is more at stake than your momentary happiness in the decisions you make with regards to your marriage. So we've got to warn against the perils of divorce. Number seven, we should speak on behalf of those without a voice, the born and the unborn. I've watched this report over the past few days, as so many of you have as well. I don't know how a Christian could do anything other than rejoice in the potential for this to be overturned and to eliminate or at least alleviate so much of the abortion that's unfolding in our world. I just, I rejoice at that and I pray to God that what has been leaked is an accurate reflection of what the reality will be in the end. As a new Christian, I just assumed that everyone who was a part of the church was by virtue of their commitment to the gospel, pro-life. And I learned the hard way over the course of time, that is not the case. 
I was pastoring in a very rural area when the effort at the personhood amendment was made in the state of Mississippi a few years ago. Some of you will remember that, an effort that was well-intended but not well carried forth. And I just assumed that there would be consensus in terms of support within our congregation, and that proved not to be the case. In fact, I would fully anticipate over the course of the next couple of days, I'll get some not-so-friendly emails. But the reality is the Bible speaks clearly of life beginning at the moment of conception. Jeremiah says, I formed you in the womb, having known you even before. What is abundantly clear is that God is the giver of life and the giver of children. And that life ought to be held in sacred regard. The sanctity of human life is not a slogan of the far right. It is a principle of the teaching of the scripture. In spite of the pushback or how unpopular in certain circles that position may be, we have nowhere else to stand if we are to lash ourselves to the teaching of the Scripture. I want it to be abundantly clear the position of our church with regards to life. We regard life as beginning at the moment of conception and are committed to a thoroughgoing pro-life position from the moment of conception to the very last natural breath is taken. This is not a political issue. This is a clear, obvious, biblical and moral issue about which there should be no indecision whatsoever in the hearts of God's people. Even as we call for speaking on behalf of those without a voice, I would admonish you that you speak in a winsome and wise way. If you don't think there are women in our congregation who have themselves experienced the heartbreak and the heartache of abortion, you have another thing coming. Their hearts are heavy on a day like today, on Mother's Day, with those experiences in your past, And they don't need your wagging finger. They need your love and affection and your kindness toward them to be reminded that the gospel of Jesus Christ binds all our wounds. That regardless of what is in our past, there's a place for us at the cross of Jesus Christ. I thank God that my sins aren't brought bare before this body of people. Neither would they want theirs. We've got to find this place of balance with conviction and insistence on the teaching of God's word and a kindness and a mercy that emulates the love and compassion of our Savior, Jesus. This is, yes, an opportunity for us to speak and to leverage every ounce of influence we can muster on behalf of those without a voice, but it's also a great opportunity for us to minister to those who've been impacted in deep, deep and severe ways by abortion or the loss of children by circumstances even at times beyond their control. Here's number eight. Disciple the children God has entrusted to your care. Don't neglect to invest yourself well in the children that God has given you. Put down the smartphone, put down the smartphone and observe the patterns of your children's life and invest in them well. It's really easy now to just stick a screen in front of them, let them be entertained for a few moments so we can finish the task at hand. But I'm telling you, the minutes are ticking away. You can't believe it until it's too late to believe it. But the older they get, the faster time really does 
go. In a few short months, I'll have a senior in high school. And from my perspective, it seems like just yesterday we brought him home from the hospital. Now, when people say that, it makes them seem old. I know that because I can remember people saying that to me and thinking, man, you're old. But there's going to come a day, if God grants you the natural span of life, when you're going to say the same thing to the next generation of moms and dads who are busily about their life as the lives of their children are quickly getting away. Invest yourself in discipling those children. Imagine for just a moment what the world might look like a couple of generations from now, if the church of Jesus Christ would commit itself to discipling their own biological children and seeing to it that the same process unfolded in the lives of their grandchildren, consider the multiplication that might take place within the church of Jesus Christ and the broader kingdom. Disciple the children God has given you. Number nine, this is really important. Share the gospel with hurting children and their families. You know, on the one hand, the response to the Roe decision that was leaked earlier this week is disappointing and discouraging and, and so much opposition to that. On the other end of the spectrum, there are concerns for me there because there are so many within the kingdom that act like, okay, we won. Like, like we're beating back darkness with the light of Supreme Court decisions. That is not the way the kingdom advances. The kingdom of Jesus does not advance by Supreme Court decisions. It does not advance by executive, executive order. It cannot advance by legislation passed. The kingdom of Jesus Christ advances by the preaching of the gospel. We draw this false dichotomy between gospel ministry and practical ministry, doing good and preaching the good news. Those don't have to be divorced from one another. In fact, they're best unfolding together, ministering to the needs of those within our community by, while holding forth the light of the gospel that promises to beat back the darkness of this world that offers hope and salvation to all who come to Jesus. And you're doing good. Don't neglect the good news of the gospel. Jesus warned the poor you have with you always. It's the good news of the gospel that is the most desperate need of all mankind. Be faithful in sharing the gospel. Here's a tenth and final one. Honor your mother and father. Today go home and celebrate your mother and call her and make sure she knows you love her and thank her for all the things that she's done and she continues to do and you hope she'll do in the future call your grandmother and love on her and tell her how thankful you are for her do all the things necessary to honor your mother and father when moses records the ten commandments in the book of exodus this is the only commandment that comes with commentary remember that honor your mother and father that your days may be long in the land that, that, that's not Moses commenting on the likelihood that if you don't honor your mother and father, they will kill you. They might, but that's not what Moses is talking about here. Moses is pointing to the reality that the family is the most fundamental. It is the most basic of units within the social structure. 
and the ability of the people of Israel to keep the stipulations of the law of Moses in many respects revolve around the health and structure of the natural family. In other words, if you don't learn authority and roles and responsibilities, if you don't benefit from all of the positive contributions that can come from the natural family, eventually, if that is the overwhelming experience of a society, it will topple within itself. All of the social ills that we decry in our nation and most of the Western world today are the product of the dissolution of the natural family. We are observing the curse of this commandment, honor your mother and father that your days may be long in the land. We have yet to be exiled from our land, but it is fundamentally changing moment by moment as the natural family continues its dissolution around us. Your children need the natural family. They need a healthy, functioning, nuclear family about them in order for them to benefit from the full measure of God's intended purpose of family itself. But he warns them, honor your mother and father that your days may be long in the land. Everything hinges on this. There's seldom a Mother's Day or a Father's Day when I make reference to honor your mother and father that I don't get this question. What about those instances when my mother or father has behaved in a dishonorable way? How do I honor them? And there's no black and white principle I can give you from the pulpit because there is such a broad range of past experiences. In some cases, it's just a mother and father that has sort of an axe to grind. There's some bitterness, some envy. There's family strife and sort of a superficial way to that, I can say you need to get over it and forgive 70 times seven and seek reconciliation with your mother and father. Honor them in being, in some ways, the bigger person in the scenario. Seek to reconcile at all costs. There are extreme examples where criminal activity and sexual abuse and grave physical abuse is unfolded, and reconciliation under those circumstances may look entirely different than the former situation, but in every instance, there ought to be a laboring to honor one's mother and father, regardless of the circumstances of their past. You know, the, the thing that makes Mother's Day such a tricky thing is that our nerves tend to be so raw when it comes to family matters. This morning, in this congregation, there are, there are some mothers and fathers who've conducted themselves in dishonorable ways. And, and you know it. We have this incredible knack for rationalizing our own sin, but something about sin within the family. We, we see our shortcomings so clearly in the reflected faces of the children that God has entrusted to our care. And, and doesn't your heart hurt at your shortcomings with regards to family, the things in your past? I've, I've spoken with mothers after each of the first two services who themselves had abortions at some point in their life. And, and they just weep. They just, they just weep. In spite of our ability to blind ourselves to our own sin, when it comes to our kids, man, we tend to see it well. Only the hardest of hearts can't see it. And I just want to say to you this morning, if you're here 
and you're craving for a new beginning, a clean slate, a fresh start, if you do anything in this world to have a second chance and do it all over again, that is precisely what Jesus promises us in the forgiveness of our sin that comes only through the message of the gospel. And the Bible teaches that if today you would believe in him, turn away from your sins and believe in him, then the old can be made new. A fresh start and a clean slate, a new creation can be for you. Don't you want for that? Don't you want a new beginning? Aren't you glad that Jesus is in the business of second chances and third chances and fourth chances? And, and what we have made such a mess of, he has the power to make right again. Aren't you glad for that? Let's go to him in prayer. God, I pray that you would, by conviction, lean on the raw nerves that family and children can expose. Create in us a keen awareness of our sin. and Move us to a place of godly sorrow and repentance. Lord, break our hearts for the things that we've done. Lift our spirits in the knowledge that there's a new beginning in Jesus Christ. God, I pray that that gospel promise would be oh so sweet to many who are gathered here this morning, that you'd save some, call them out, and save them, grant them a fresh start. We ask it in Jesus' name.